Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and a very special night it is. This is the fifth anniversary special of Tales to Terrify. Five years ago, on Friday the 13th, 2012, the very first episode of Tales to Terrify aired, and now it's Friday the 13th again. That first episode was hosted by our dearly departed founder, Larry Santaro. The story was written and read by Martin Munt. His story was Chair, and I remember listening to it while I worked out on a Bowflex in my parents' basement in Ohio. To mark the occasion, our editor Scott Silk has worked with quite a few narrators to put together something a bit different. We have a story from Kim Newman, which will be read by an ensemble cast. Because of that, we'll be, of course, hearing a bit about Kim and about Alex Swinley, who narrates the bulk of the story, but links to other narrators will be in the show notes. No stranger to Tales to Terrify, Kim Newman's Is There Anybody There? aired in Episode 5, and his illimitable Dominion in episode 25. In addition to other more recent episodes, such as back in 212 with The Chill Clutch of the Unseen. Kim was born in Brixton, London in 1959 to parents who were potters. In school, he became interested in monsters, movies, literature, comics, and so forth, and would also work on theater with humor sketches and musical or comedy groups, he also played Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Later, he'd write plays and musicals which were put on at the Bridgewater Arts Center. After selling a review of The Last House on the Left, he started working regularly as a film critic. Kim's biography at this point becomes quite diverse, including writing books about movies, appearances in fanzines, which led to selling his first short story, intersecting with Neil Gaiman, then writing funny articles for what Kim describes as girly mags. Then, on to broadcasting, Kim would start working both on radio and television reviewing films, books, and plays. And he wrote, 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 and writes. The entire unabbreviated biography can be found on his website, johnnyalucard.com. Link will, of course, be found in the show notes. Give me your ears, children of the night. It is time for Kim Newman's Where the Bodies Are Buried. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In High Street, Robert Hackwell caught sight of his own name. It tugged the corner of his eye, drawing his attention. The elections were months past, but his posters were still up in some places. He stood in front of Valerie's video, which he remembered as a junk and curio emporium. Ten years ago, it became a video rental shop, then spread to encompass premises on either side, becoming a video super rental shop. The added-on shop fronts were boarded up, and Valerie's was selling off used cassettes from 199. Only half the shop was devoted to videos, the rest boasting odd items from dusty fresh fruit to Nintendo cartridges. Video had been an 80s boom business. The window was covered with glossy, sagging posters for films Hackwell wouldn't want Colin or Sammy to see. Babes bust out, with a pouting silicone freak in a shrunken T-shirt with prison arrows, brandishing a machine gun half her size an out-of-focus exploding helicopter in the background. Steam Heat 2, an erotic thriller, advertised by a buxom silhouette in a darkened bedroom, raising a bloody trowel, the frightened eyes of the man beneath staring out from between the census certificate and the credits block. His election poster had been a nice black-and-white photograph of him, taken a year or so ago, before he got the slight flabbiness about his chin Helen was on at him to do something about and vote Hackwell. No clever slogan, no promises. He was well enough known in town to stand on his own reputation. Besides, the party had held his ward since before World War II. He couldn't find the poster in Valerie's window, so he looked at the boarded-up shop next door. It had been fly-posted for jumble sales and discotheques. He was sure one of his posters had been up there, but it was either buried under more recent layers or shredded to strips. He must have been mistaken. He felt silly as if he'd been caught out, and then he looked back at the video posters and saw it. Bigger than the others, and mainly black shadows with dripping red and green letters, it advertised a horror movie, probably one of the video nasties he'd campaigned against a few years ago, when everyone was worried about kiddies renting out snuff films. A single red eye, stark mad, stared out of the ruin of a face. A double row of shining teeth, clenched and exposed in a lipless mouth. A withered hand, fingers tipped with steel claws, seemed to reach out of the poster, each shiny claw containing the screaming face of a teenage boy or girl. Underneath was an abandoned graveyard, tombstones leaning at bizarre angles, weeds growing around forgotten monuments. At the top of the poster were the words Rob Hackwell knows, and, in bigger letters, like razor slashes in velvet, the title of the film, Where the Bodies Are Buried. 
he looked again, assuming he'd mistaken something similar for his name. Rod Bicknell or Don Treadwell, Jack Robwell? No, it was definitely Rob Hackwell. Most people call him Robert. Only Helen and a few of his oldest friends and enemies called him Bob. But Rob Hackwell was unmistakably a variation of his name. He detected for the first time the possibility of a cruel joke. And if cruel jokes were involved, the obvious suspect was the independent Reg Jessop, a sitting councillor, had left the party and stood again on his own ticket, besting the official candidate to be returned as more of a nuisance than the actual opposition. Elaborate and pointless jokes were a hobby of his. Reg's entire political career was an elaborate and pointless joke. He stormed into Valerie's, sounding the bell, and cringed. By the counter was a cardboard cutout of a small blonde woman in karate pyjamas, aiming a kick somewhere in the vicinity of Hackwell's head, mouth open in an intimidating, silent yell. Don't mind her, said another blonde, a girl whose hair was bleached almost white. She sat on a high stool behind the counter, dressed in black and reading a film magazine. She's just an ad for Foxy Kickboxer. The girl thumbed over her shoulder, indicating a television high on a shelf. Sound turned low. The original of the cutout, less imposing when shrunk into the tiny box, exploded out of a jacuzzi, pyjamas plastered over prominent nipples, and launched punches into half a dozen Asians. They had swords, but she saw them up with just her hands and feet, and in one case, her breasts. Not exactly, Wim Wendis, said the girl. But there's market for it. He didn't know the girl. She wasn't Valerie, whose real name was Jean Morris. Hackwell had met Jeanie when the council reprimanded her for renting 18 certificate films to 16-year-olds. I'm Robert Hackwell, he announced. The girl's dead white brow wrinkled, and she looked at him as if he had declared himself the Prime Minister or Ken Dodd. I want an explanation. Rob Hackwell. Robert. Mr Hackwell. Councillor Hackwell. And I want to know why you're defaming me in your window. The girl burst out laughing and covered her mouth with glossy black fingernails. Dust from the building site drifted across Denby Gardens along with the battering drone of pneumatic drills. When Hackwell found himself coughing, Reg gave him a matey back-thump harder than necessary. He had to grip hard to keep hold of his briefcase. "'Get those lungs clear, Bob,' he said. "'I thought you'd kick Siggy's into touch, old thing.' Hackwell coughed against his free fist, knowing his face was turning red. The man from the Herald was taking photographs, and he was sure the paper would pick the worst-looking one of him, as usual, to go with the story.' Next to the grassy triangle of Denby Gardens rose the skeleton of the discount development. It should have been finished six months ago, but there had been cock-ups since day one. Hackwell had worked closely with the McKinnell brothers from the beginning. His firm was supplying many of the materials. It was a plank of his campaign that the development would be an invigorating economic injection for the area. His family economy was certainly invigorated, the brothers' generous consultation fees were putting Sammy through junior school. As Ben McKinnell, almost spherical in his shell suit, explained to the reporter about the setbacks, Reg smirked at each lengthy anti-union aside. Reg said if you put a penny in the slot, any McKinnell brother would give out a five-minute tirade about the tyranny of workshy yobs. Lucia Howell, the opposition leader, tottered on high heels peering at neglected flower beds, as if she took this inspection lark seriously. One of her ever-present St Bernards rooted around somewhere, getting underfoot. Denby Gardens was council property, but nothing much had ever been done with it. The playground consisted of two lethal swings and a concrete lump, supposedly in the shape of a whale, its flapping tail broken off by vandals. There was a shed, reputedly locked since the turn of the century, marked with... Council property. Keep out. Denby Gardens would be no loss. Hackwell could force the sale through, but it could be easier if the decisions were unanimous. 
Ben McKinnell, questioned, admitted the original plans had underestimated the parking space necessary for the development and that he was more than willing to pay a good price for the gardens. Hackwell looked across the area. Kids played tag around the mutilated whale. Their young mothers loitered by the shed, using it as a windbreak while they lit cigarettes. He wished he hadn't given up. Brickies on their tea break whistled and called at the smoking girls, receiving only snooty looks and rude gestures. McKinnell joked that he wanted to send his builders on an anti-sexism awareness course, and Jilly Kenner, Hackwell's militant deputy, commented that being arse-raped a couple of times might improve their attitude. Right on, Jilly, said Reg. He always backed anything that made the party look like loons. Excuse me, Councillor Hackwell? He turned and saw a tweedy young woman in glasses. I'm Ginger Dillon from the Denbed Residence Committee. Hackwell remembered the name. She'd written many letters complaining. Mrs Dillon was a nimby in favour of the discount development, but not in my backyard. We're petitioning against the loss of this park area. Mrs Dillon handed him a substantial folder of signatures. Hackwell heard the click of the Herald man's camera and saw Reg's grin widen. He had suspicions that he'd been stage-managed. There has been consultation with the resident at every stage of the development, said Ben McKinnell, waving a fat cigar. Mrs Dillon represents a minority opinion. Hackwell found himself with a petition in one hand and his briefcase in the other. Another cloud of dust whisked past and he coughed again, this time racked with convulsions. He dropped the case and folder and bent double. Reg hit his back again. Lucia scrambled to pick up the petition and huddled with Mrs Dillon. The NIMBY had been an opposition candidate at the last election. Unsuccessful, thank Christ. Reg, Jilly and Lucia were quite enough. Hackwell cleared his lungs and straightened up. Reg brushed his shoulders like a valet solicitous for his health. The independent had been the same in the school thirty years ago. He had a way of seeming to be a friend while actually making you look bad. Sometimes Hackwell wished they were back in Ashgrove Primary where direct methods could be used to end a dispute. District councillors weren't allowed to give Chinese burns. Reg had Hackwell's briefcase upside down. As he handed it over, the catch broke and things fell out. He made a grab for the plain brown folder with his consultancy invoices. Certain the Herald reporter would make a sudden grab for the evidence and Hackwell would find himself indicted, shamed and forced to resign. There was nothing illegal in being paid for a job well done, but he knew how it would look if it came out. What's this, Bob? Reg asked, holding up the cassette box. Taking home a pervy video. He opened the black box and read the title. Where the bodies are buried. Hmm, sounds gruesome. I had you down more as a chariots of fire sort of chap. Hackwell didn't want to explain why he'd rented the tape. It made him look ridiculous. For the kids, he said. But... The grin infected Reg's entire face. This has an 18 certificate. I'm sure Colin isn't 14 yet, and Sammy is just a baby. Hackwell snatched the video and stuffed it into his case along with his papers. The invoices were safely buried at the bottom. When can we expect the council's decision? Asked the reporter. Hackwell had to concentrate. About the car park? The man from the Herald prompted. Mrs Dillon glared like a witch. Ben McKinnell exhaled smoke, which dissipated on the breeze. Next Tuesday, Hackwell replied, we'll discuss it fully in the council, and if there's any disagreement, put it to a vote. How did you like the film? asked the neo-albino girl, whose name was Shelley. Hackwell harumphed about it being rubbish, bloody rubbish to be precise. Shelley had to bend down to put the film back in the W section behind the counter and her short black skirt rode up. It's a popular rental, she said. When Colin had discovered his dad had taken out where the bodies are buried, he wanted to be allowed to watch the video. All his friends had seen it and it was supposed to be wicked. Apparently there was a scene where a boy's eyeballs crawled out of his head and strangled him with the trails of his optic nerve. Also, 
Colin helpfully informed his father, the baddie had their surname, Hackwill. He sent Colin and Sammy to bed and put the tape on. After the first five minutes, in which a girl was attacked in a graveyard by a monster with one red eye, Helen gave him a funny look and went upstairs too. Shelley slipped the video in its place and stood up. She smoothed her skirt, giving him a shop assistant smile. She was the age of the girls in the film. The girls chased and killed by the monster, Rob Hackwell. He had watched most of Where the Bodies Are Buried on Fast Forward, going to regular speed when anyone was murdered or looking around to make sure Helen wasn't back whenever a teenager took off her clothes. There was no story, just a series of freakish deaths. During one of the murders, the victim, a fat gangster with a cigar stub permanently in his mouth, shouted, Get back! Hackwill! as the monster advanced. Then his cigar turned into dynamite and exploded, making a fireball of his head. Hackwell played it over twice to make sure. The fat man had definitely said Hackwell. While on Fast Forward, he'd come to a scene without a murder or sex. When the heroine visited a middle-aged man played by somebody he remembered as a sheriff in a 70s TV show. He decided to watch properly, hoping there'd be an explanation. The sheriff was a judge in Where the Bodies Are Buried, and the heroine, a disturbingly mature schoolgirl named Tina, was his granddaughter. Her parents and most of her friends had been killed, and the judge knew something. Rob Hackwell. The judge sighed, voice heavy with dread. He's come back. Hackwell had shivered. He didn't understand why people paid good money to be frightened. Rob Hackwell? pouted Tina, who was unlikely to give Meryl Streep nightmares at Oscar time. I've heard that name somewhere before. The judge nodded and shook his head. You must have been very little when it happened. The picture went wavy, and the judge's voice continued to explain while pictures showed a mob chasing a one-eyed man into a graveyard. He was a blackmailer, the judge said. A vicious, evil blackmailer. He had an uncanny knack for ferreting out secrets, for inflating innuendos into slanders, for discovering where the bodies were buried. For years he preyed on the town, turning people against one another, ruining lives, wrecking marriages. Everyone came to dread the anonymous poison letters. Everyone was a secret. The mob, led by the fat gangster and the judge, cornered the cringing man. He was the actor who played the monster, without makeup. He fell exhausted against a gravestone and begged for his life. We found out it was Rob Hackwell. He'd been a councilman until we indicted him for taking graft from the mob. The letters had been his revenge. He hadn't done it for the money. It had all been to ruin the city. The gangster had a blowtorch. He advanced on the blackmailer, belly looming over the camera. That night, the judge said, we tortured him, trying to find where he had stashed the evidence he used against us. He wouldn't talk, but we kept on torturing him until there was no point torturing him anymore. We left him with the other dead things, thinking we'd heard the last of Rob Hackwell. But now... The film came back to the judge, who held his head in his hands. Tina was looking at him, disgusted. But now he's come back. The lights were out, and when they came back, the judge's tongue inflated to the size of a watermelon, bursting his head like a pimple. Tina screamed as the judge's head stretched and split. The camera whirled around, and standing in front of the French windows was the monster, Rob Hackwell. Hackwell froze the frame and looked at his namesake. The poison penman had made a bargain with the devil, a dark woman in a black leather bodysuit. He could come back to life, providing he regularly delivered souls to his mistress in hell. He lived in a cavern under the graveyard and had one red eye, shining bare teeth and steel claws. When he killed someone, he said something funny. Hackwell unfroze the frame. That was the trouble with the judge, the monster said. His tongue always wrote checks 
his ass couldn't cash. It fast-forwarded through the rest of the film. Tina summoned up the devil who, changing her mind, dragged the monster back to hell, where he was torn apart by the ghosts of his victims. In the last scene, Tina was back in a depopulated school, shaken but a survivor. She went to the ladies for a smoke, and a black shape with a glowing red eye burst out of the toilet bowl, filling the screen. Heavy metal played over the rising end credits. The sequel is supposed to be worse, Shelley said. There's a sequel, she shrugged. There's always a sequel. You've got it. He didn't want to rent the film, just look at the box. All morning he hadn't been able to get the bits of where the bodies are buried, he'd seen, out of his head. It's not on video yet. It's not even at the palace. Shelley dug through a pile behind the counter and found a film magazine. She paged through until she came to an advert. Here, she said. It was a scrambling of the video poster, the same elements in a different order. The red eye, the claws, the graveyard, the jagged teeth, the screaming teenagers. Where the bodies are buried, part two, Hackle's back. I'll bet you can't wait, Shelley said. It must be fun having everybody be afraid of you. Because Reg and Jilly abstained, the Denby Gardens vote was deadlocked. It was not a party issue. One of the opposition, who owned a delivery firm connected with the McKinnell brothers, voted for the sale. But under the influence of Mrs Dillon, Lucia had taken against it, so no decision could be made. There was nothing more to be done in this meeting. As chairman, he sat facing everyone. At the other end of the table, the Reg Jessup grin shone. Hackwell thought he heard Reg's suppressed chortle. Does anyone wish to change their vote? Hackwell looked at Jilly, hoping she'd turn around and toe the party line for once. If Ben McKinnell hadn't made that joke about anti-sexism awareness, he might have had a better chance of getting a proper car park. Reg had abstained just to stir things up. He had been the one who delivered the McKinnell brothers' proposition to him in the first place. As usual, he had set everything in motion and backed off. No one wanted to change. We have to make a decision. If it's an even split, a clerk said, surely the motion falls? Perhaps we stay here till someone cracks, Reg suggested. Hackwell drummed his fingers on the table. Looking down, he'd noticed he'd scratched the veneer. His nails were too long. He must cut them. He had hoped he could just go into the palace, buy a ticket and hide in the auditorium. But for the first time in years there was a queue. Hackwell had told Helen he'd be home late because of another committee meeting. There was a cutout in the foyer. Rob Hackwell, the monster. The cutout was about his size and the red eye lit up electrically. Hackwell couldn't look at his namesake. The queue was mainly excited young people. He was sure most weren't old enough to see the film. They were blithely unaware that they were breaking the law, but he, well above the legal age for an 18 film, was the one skulking guiltily, hoping no one would notice him. Come to see yourself, asked someone. Bewildered, he turned, heart-thumping. It was Shelley, in a floor-length black dress, slit up the thighs. She was with a boy who wore eyeshadow. Chris, this is the real Rob Hackwell, she told her boyfriend. Remember, I told you about him. The boy smiled, showing sharp eye teeth. Robert, he insisted, not Rob. You must be becoming a horror expert, Shelley said. You'll be subscribing to Fangoria next. Pardon? He didn't think much of where the bodies are buried, Shelley told Chris. The boy shrugged. I thought it was overrated too he said. He had an educated voice, a bit posy. Alan Keyes betrayed his own story. His vision is way too weird to be hammered into a commercial package. Keyes? Alan Keyes is the director, Shelley explained. He's better known as a writer. You must have seen his books. Strange segments, busting a gut, Cornworld. Did he make this too? Hackwell asked, nodding at the poster for Hackwell's back. No, 
Chris said. He gets shafted by Hollywood. Sold away the rights for a mess of Beverly Hills Pottage. It must be like being locked out of your own house, Shelley said. Having your life's work taken away from you. This is directed by the woman who made the putrid promos. The queue started moving and Hackwell got a ticket. He had to exchange an embarrassed greeting with the cinema manager, who knew him from some committee or other, before he was allowed into the auditorium. The manager was surprised to see him, but he didn't bother to find an excuse. Rob Hackwell, said the manager. Funny. I never thought of it before. Odd coincidence, eh? He finally escaped into the dark and sat in the back. Shelley and Chris were down in the front row. As the lights went down for the trailers, he saw them kissing and imagined their tongues entwining like slithering snakes, knotting their heads together. The main character of Where the Bodies Are Buried too was Frankie, a teenage boy whose penis was cursed by Rob Hackwell and turned from time to time into a toothy snake. In one scene, the condition came upon him while he was screwing the school slut. The snake ate its way out of the girl, splattering Freddy with her insides. Days later, Hackwell remembered the scene with a chill, knowing it was all special effects, rubber and ketchup and complicated electronic gadgets, but that didn't help. In the town hall gents, he looked down at his own penis. he drank several cups of tea and his bladder was uncomfortably full. He remembered Frankie's trouser snake and could not let his bladder go. It was agonising. Behind him, someone coughed. He turned, zipped up sharply, and smelled cigar smoke. Ben McKinnell stood by the hand dryer. Councillor Hackwheel, he said. About the vote. No change, I'm afraid. The developer shrugged. We'll have to play a rougher game. Years ago, when the McKinnell brothers were starting out, there were stories about a shop steward whose hands had got broken. Ben McKinnell gave him a large brown envelope. Councillor Howell might be persuaded to change her vote. Lucia, not likely. Open the envelope. He did, and slid out a sheaf of black and white photographs. Eight by ten, like film stills. Taken with a telephoto lens, Ben McKinnell explained. That's why they're a bit grainy. Lucia Howell was an animal lover. With her husband Quinton, she was known for breeding show dogs. Her mantelpiece was crowded with trophies and ribbon medals. They could be seen in the background of the photographs. Lucia and Quinton were recognisable, as were their prize-winning St Bernard's, Courage, Missy and Big Brute. Hackwell had not realised how much of an animal lover the opposition leader was, or how enthusiastically her husband, a gentleman farmer, joined in her hobby. Tea still sloshing inside him, Hackwell left the gents. Ben McKinnell ducked out and left town hall. Lucia was in the corridor outside the committee room. She had Big Brute with her. His tongue flopped on the floor as she scratched his abundant neck fur, cooing in his large ear. Lucia, he began... Could I have a word before the meeting? Something has come up. Mrs Dillon had found his home number and called dozens of times, leaving stinging messages with Helen and, in one case, Sammy. When he got in, he had to take one of her calls. It was surprisingly painless, since he was able to divert the nimby bile towards Lucia. After the vote, he'd felt an enormous sense of release. For one thing, his bladder let go. For another, Lucia's change of vote encouraged several opposition councillors to follow suit. The sale of Denby Gardens went through. Then Reg lowered his voice to sound like the gravelly American who narrated horror film trailers and comically snarked, Hackwell's back. The Independent couldn't know exactly how it influenced Lucia, but Hackwell realised Reg did understand. They had known each other too long and could keep nothing hidden. At school, Reg had been the lookout, watching for teachers while Hackwell snatched some snot-nosed dinner money. He had got his jollies being part of it without getting his hands dirty. Hackwell tucked into his bacon and beans with relish. Since the meeting, he had not thought of where the bodies are buried, parts one or two, 
The monster had brushed his life and was now speeding back towards hell, never to be heard from again. Turn the telly off, Helen told Colin, and come have your tea. Hackwell looked across the kitchen into the front room. Colin was squatting by the television set. After the break, Jonathan Ross said, we'll be talking to the most frightening man in the world. He knew what the chat show host would say. Rob Hackwell. Mal Garazio, the actor under the Rob Hackwell rubber face, was a volatile little American who barely let Ross get out a question before getting into his flow. He talked about Rob Hackwell as a mythic archetype, as an aspect of the Jungian unconscious, and movie monsters as the demons of the modern pantheon. In a very real sense, Jonathan? Garazio concluded. Our society needs Rob Hackwell. Helen clapped ironically. She'd heard about Rob Hackwell the movie monster somewhere, but not thought it interesting enough to discuss with her husband. Now, her only comment was that she realised why he'd brought home that horrid video a few weeks ago. It wasn't as if Robert Hackwell were a common name. He'd never come across another Hackwell to whom he was not related, let alone another Robert Hackwell. Fascinated, he watched Garazio rattle on. In an open-necked striped shirt and leather trousers, the actor was very unlike the dead-faced monster but he did the deep and scary Rob Hackwell voice when prompted. The television showed a clip from part two. Rob Hackwell spoke to Frankie from the cover of the satanic heavy metal LP the teenager played backwards to bring the monster back from hell. You and me, bro, the monster said. We're going to tear down this graveyard town and cover it with asphalt. Their lives will be our parking lot. Ross asked, Garazio, whether Alan Keyes, the creator of Rob Hackwell, would be participating in further sequels. The actor deftly skipped the question. Hackwell recognised the trick from meetings. It always came when someone didn't want to deal with a point raised by a report. We've already done Where the Bodies Are Buried Part 3 in 3D, Garazio said. Rob Hackwell will be badder than ever. Straight from hell to a theater near you. He'll be slashing and snipping, getting close to your heart and deep into your pulsating brain. Ross shut the actor up and introduced a pop group. Five puffs with squeaky voices who Sammy thought were outstanding. Excellent, said Colin. My dad from hell. Without thinking, Hackwell cuffed his son. The blow landed harder than intended, and Colin was knocked over. Helen drew in a sharp breath. Bob, she said. He's bleeding. He looked at his fingers and saw drops of red at the point of his nails. Colin, frightened, scrambled away. Helen, shocked, extended her hands as if to protect herself. Hackwell hissed through bared teeth. Hackwell dreamed he was in hell. His face being stripped of skin and flesh by a white-haired girl demon. When he woke up, his left eye wouldn't open. It was sleep-gummed, and no amount of warm water would do anything about it. In the end, Helen shrugged and said it was bound to come unstuck eventually, and that he shouldn't worry about it too much. Looking at himself, with one eye in the mirror, he thought his face was tighter, more shrunken and his right eye was rimmed with red, as if he were a heavy drinker. Since you've stopped smoking, you've become a wreck, Rob, Helen said. Bob, he corrected. Pardon? My name is Bob. That's what I said. Bob. No, you said Rob, like the monster Rob, not Bob, like the husband. She left him in the bathroom, examining his face. His eyes still wouldn't open. Get used to it, Rob, he told himself. Reg was in the office to give him the news about the Howells. Their Land Rover had gone off a bridge. They were both dead. Looks like they lost control, Reg said, keeping the gloating to a minimum. But the police are troubled by one detail. Reg let it dangle until Hackwell snapped a question. What? The dogs. There's no evidence of a break-in, so it looks like Lucia and Quentin did it themselves. Did what? Killed their dogs. 
with a carving knife. Those St. Bernards were like their children, but... Hackwell was uncomfortable. The photographs Ben McKinnell had given him were locked in the filing cabinet. He'd have to destroy them. Bob, is there something wrong with your eye? He thought he should be there to see the ground broken. It was the first really hot day of the summer, and the bulldozer's driver's bare belly flopped over his jeans belt as he sat at the wheel, starting up his machine. A few stood at the perimeter of Denby Gardens watching. At least the NIMBYs weren't staging a human chain. Hackwell could imagine Mrs Dillon going down under the blades, sliced up and redistributed, like the dummies of the Where the Bodies Are Buried films. Entrails spread like bright streamers in the marks of the caterpillar tracks. The bulldozer growled across the park, scraping away grass. The wedge shovel ploughed against the concrete whale and broke it up, sweeping the chunks aside. The swings crumbled as if they were made from paper straws. On the return pass, the machine smashed down the ancient hut. It proved completely empty. There was a brief pause when the driver saw something white in the earth and thought it might be a human thigh bone. Ben McKinnell pronounced it a piece of cow and tossed it away. The levelling of Denby Gardens continued. Underneath the grass, there was only soft earth. He was late for the meeting. As he entered the room, someone growled, Hackwell's back! in a horror film accent. Reg didn't have to do it himself now, it was a standing joke. There had been a snap election to fill the empty place on the council, and somehow Ginger Dillon had been elected by the opposition. She was a one-issue councillor, and her pet peeve was the discount development. Every time Hackwell sat in his chair at the head of the table, Mrs Dillon pulled out more press cuttings and statistics, coming perilously close to libelling everyone concerned with the development, from the McKinnell brothers down to the site T-Boy. Even before the minutes of the last meeting could be read, Mrs Dillon was waving documents that proved Dougie McKinnell had been fined for bribing a borough surveyor in the next county. These people are no better than gangsters, Mr Chairman, and we've let them have the run of the town. Hackwell was tired. His sleep had been troubled recently. Helen and the kids were treating him strangely. Also, he knew that sooner or later he would sit down in council and Mrs Dillon would raise the matter of consultancy fees. The development is nearly a year overdue, with no end in sight. I propose we suspend our relationship with the McKinnells and reassess our whole position. Hackwell looked at Mrs Dillon with his one red eye and tried by sheer force of will to shut her up. A sound started in his stomach and vibrated up through his teeth. Somewhat alarmed, the woman paused in mid-rant and cringed back in her seat. Everyone else was similarly stunned. Good. It was time he reaffirmed his control over the situation. That's better, Hackwell hissed. Any other business? The publicity for Where the Bodies Are Buried Part 3 in 3D began months before the film came to the cinemas. Little boxes in every newspaper and magazine Hackwell picked up bore messages. He knows, be scared. Or... In your face, Rob Hackwell, and the hack is coming back. Rob Hackwell was everywhere. Posters, pop records, T-shirts, comics, paperback books, Halloween masks, Christmas tree ornaments. The monster was impossible to escape. Hackwell understood from Shelley that each film made more money than the last and that each new sequel boosted video rentals of earlier titles. Every once in a while, he would drop into Valerie's video to check up on the snowballing Rob Hackwell craze. Shelley, the only person in town who didn't show either fear or contempt in his presence, was helpful and collected articles from horror film magazines for him. She'd had a row with Chris and the project filled her suddenly available free time. When Jeannie Morris judged one of the rental cassettes of the original Where the Bodies Are Buried, battered enough to be sold off to make room for new stock, Shelley kept it back for Hackwell. He felt obliged to cough up the £1.99 for the film that had somehow become a piece of his life. The only other videos he owned were a collection of his own appearances on the local news, 
taped off the television. And uh, Anne, Margaret and Elvis in Viva Las Vegas, which Colin had given him for his birthday last year. Shelley sorted through her stack of papers and cuttings, searching out something for him. She was taking time between college and university and hoped to finally study film at East Anglia. She was subscribed to a raft of film magazines and as interested in the ones with pictures of a grinning Rob Hackwell on the cover and disgusting colour stills of mutilated bodies inside as she was in the ones with no illustrations and huge wedges of incomprehensible text littered with footnotes and references. Personally, she preferred black and white films, which Hackwell thought might be why she dressed only in black, down to her lipstick, and had such white skin and hair. He could not imagine Shelley with a suntan. There were Rob Hackwell cutouts all over Valerie's video. He caught sight of his reflection in the glass of the window. Among the Rob Hackwell shapes, he lurked, his red eye and his bared teeth matching their rictus expressions. He developed the habit of drawing his lips away from his teeth and hissing. His hand was given to locking into a clenched claw too. He supposed it must be psychosomatic. All over town, his old election posters were reappearing, surgically altered to overlay the characteristics of the monster on his face. Usually, one eye was obscured and the other coloured red, and a gash of teeth were drawn over his smile. Written across Vote Hackwell was the scrawl, Or He'll Kill You. Here's the piece I was telling you about, Shelley said, handing over several photocopied sheets clipped together. It's by that bloke who used to be on Channel 4, an analysis of the whole Rob Hackwell phenomenon. It gets woolly towards the conclusion, but there's meat in the text. The Channel 4 fellow began by dissecting the name Rob Hackwell. Rob, to steal, a crime. Hack, to maim a lowlife. Will, the force of determination, a power of the mind. And then followed the changes Keyes had made between A Trickle of Shame, his original short story, and Where the Bodies Are Buried, the first film. The author suggested Rob Hackwell had escaped from Alan Keyes, growing into a different kind of character. In the story, the monster, who didn't even have a name, was simply an incarnation of the guilts that prey on the characters. In Where the Bodies Are Buried, Rob Hackwell, thanks to Mal Gariazzo and some touches of black humour, had somehow become an engaging personality for the film's predominantly teenage audience. Rob Hackwell was at once the true face of evil behind the hypocrisy of his older generation and the anarchic troublemaker who brings down the corrupt figures, fathers, judges, policemen, mob bosses, who represent the small-town setting. Hackle had to struggle to weed out the meaning of the article, and he felt he knew no more at the end than at the start. The point seemed to be that there were many Rob Hackwells. He supposed he was one of them. Rob, Reg said. Everyone called him Rob now hovering over his desk. Have you noticed that, no matter how hot it gets, Mrs Dillon doesn't wear short-sleeved blouses, but you can see blue marks through her sleeves. What do you make of them? Do you reckon Hubby gives her a bit of a belt? He shook his head. No, Mr Dillon didn't hit his wife. There was no Mr Dillon anymore. He had left that bitch last year, and Hackwell knew why. He couldn't take her problem any longer. A surprising problem. He hadn't needed a McKinnell to find out. He'd managed on his own. He'd discovered he was good at finding things out. Sometimes Reg hinted at things that helped him, but mainly he did find those things out on his own. One thing about Ginger, Hackwell said. She's certainly been a shot in the arm. Reg laughed out loud, but Hackwell could tell he was scared as well as pleased. He must have a secret too. Everyone did. Alan Keyes didn't give many interviews, but he had made an exception for the leading American horror film magazine. Shelley left Hackwell a message on his answer phone, telling him that she was photocopying the piece for him. When he played the message back, Reg was still hanging around his office. Alan Keyes, eh? He said. Who'd have thought it? What? 
I suppose it must be the same, Alan Keyes. Hackwell looked at Reg and felt his eye burning under the patch. Reg was being especially infuriating. We were all kids together. Now he's in Hollywood and we're still stuck in the old town. Do you mean to say we knew this, Keyes? Reg laughed. More you than me, Robbo. Most of the interview was about Alan Key's reconciliation with New Frontier, the company that made Where the Bodies Are Buried films. He had signed away all rights to the story and characters in exchange for the chance to direct, and rumours had been circulating that he was unhappy with the way the sequels had been handled. He said Rob Hackwell had become too clownish, too obvious. He wasn't scary anymore, and there was too much heavy metal in the films. Now, after the stalling of a big studio project, Keyes was returning to the series, providing an original storyline for the redevelopment, Where the Bodies Are Buried For. Hackwell looked at the photocopied photograph of Keyes inset into the text. The face was bleached to white, the eyes holes in the picture, a razor-cut fringe of black hair indistinguishable from the background. Nothing in the reproduced and degraded image reminded him of anyone he could consciously remember. The article was entitled The Man Who Created Rob Hackwell and illustrated with scratchy sketches by Keyes himself of his early ideas of the character. Mal Galeazio, whose death by hanging had been ruled due to sexual adventure by the Hollywood coroner, would obviously have to be replaced. Keyes, who was fulsome in his praise for the late actor, promised that a new face would mean a new Rob Hackwell, a more serious monster for the 90s. No crappy jokes, he promised. Just no frills scares. The new film would explore the Rob Hackwell mythos and finally explain that the whole curse was due to the fact that the town's founders had built on an Indian burial ground. Rob Ackwell is why America, the parasite, Keyes explained. The cancer on the virgin land, the epitome of the 20th century nightmare. At the end, the interviewer asked the question Hackwell had been waiting for. Where did the name come from? It's kind of silly, Keyes said. When I was a kid in England, there was a bully in my playground. Remember when you made him drink water from the toilet, Reg said. And the time, the time you hung his shorts from the climbing frame after P.E. You were a right little monster, Robbo. Hackwell still could remember almost nothing. Ben McKinnell told him there was another setback and no more capital was available for the discount development. Hackwell fixed the developer with his eye and made demands. McKinnell countered with threats. Certain deals could be made public. He chewed his cigar stub and Hackwell was reminded of the gangster in Where the Bodies Are Buried, the one whose head catches fire. McKinnell inhaled and began to cough. Hackwell made no move to help him. The cigar fell and smouldered on the carpet. McKinnell's face was red and his hands were around his own throat. He looked as if he were throttling himself. Hackwell hissed through his teeth. The developer fell off his chair and crawled a few feet before turning on his back, eyes staring up. Ben McKinnell had swallowed his own tongue and choked on it. Hackwell made and unmade a clawed fist. Who'd have believed it? He chortled to himself, his nails wrapping the table. Ginger Dillon was a heroin addict nearly bankrupt because of her habit. Chili Kenner, the feminist, had paid for her university tuition as a nude model. The publisher of the Herald had a taste for underage girls and had stopped running editorials making Rob Hackwell jokes. Jeannie Morris kept a selection of hardcore pornography under the counter for special customers and was willing to turn over her client list in order to keep the secret safe. His own secretary had two abortions before her 16th birthday and another one on the way. The chair of the housing committee had three bank accounts under assumed names. Dougie McKinnell had killed a business rival with a cricket bat. The manager of the palace 
was bent as a nine bob note and HIV positive. Chris Shelley's ex-boyfriend was Mrs Dillon's dope delivery boy. Helen had slept with Sammy's art teacher three times. Colin had a dirty magazine hidden under his comics. He sat in the darkened room in his seat at the head of the table. He felt as if he were the dark heart of the town. He could see the glowing lines that connected everything. He knew everything that was there to be known. But he still couldn't remember the child who'd grown up to be a writer. Shelley was leaving for East Anglia. He gave her an envelope full of £50 notes to supplement her grant. She was the only one he had any time for. He hoped Sammy would grow up to be like Shelley. But there was not much chance of that now. The kids being with their mother, raised to be mini Helens. Goodbye, monster, Shelley said, kissing his cold cheek. She walked away, her long black coat outlining her sleek figure. She reminded Hackwell of the actress who played the devil in Where the Bodies Are Buried films. Before she was out of sight, she turned and gave him an encouraging wave. The bulldozers were still there, under tarpaulins. Work was supposed to resume any day now, as soon as the surviving McKinnell brothers had sorted out their complicated tangle of affairs. Ben McKinnell had been heavily insured, and the cash injection would keep the development going. Hackwell thought it would never be finished. The development would drag on forever, spreading across Denby Gardens to swamp the close where Mrs Dillon lived, then sprawling through the town, ripping up the roads and parks and houses, replacing asphalt with mud. He stood where the gardens had been, soil clogging the soles of his shoes. Holes were excavated all around like mass graves. He'd been spending a lot of time there, loitering, thinking. He walked carefully across the bare earth. It was dark and the ground was treacherous. There was a bright moon to guide him, but he knew where the chasms were anyway. This was his country, for he was a monster. That was something he accepted. He had scraped bare his scar on the town map. Everything that got in his way he had removed. He wondered when he'd become a monster. When he saw the poster for Where the Bodies Are Buried in Valerie's video. When Alan Keyes first turned on his word processor and dredged up a name from his own past for a make-up character. When he had accepted his first consultancy fee. Or back in the playground when Reg and he had picked out a solitary little boy and made a mark on his mind. It was here, a voice said. Reg stood by the bulldozer, wrapped up warm in an anorak. Hackwell had noticed him hanging around the fringes of his one-eyed vision for days now. We used to play here, remember? Hackwell realised it was true. Ash Grove, closed down years ago, was a few streets away. Denby Gardens had been on the way to and from school. Alan used to make up stories about a monster in the shed, he said, remembering at last. It ate eyes. Found his vocation, Reg said. If you hadn't made him drink loo water, he wouldn't be in Beverly Hills porking popsies and bikinis and shoveling half Columbia up his nose. Hackwell remembered the screwed-up child face, leaking tears. The face was close because he was holding the kid's shoulders, shaking them. Reg, egging him on, making suggestions, darting about like an ape, grinning and laughing. The little shit owes you, Robbo, Reg said. Hackwell found a pickaxe in his hands. It had been stuck in a pile of rubble like a sword in the stone. His long-nailed fingers gripped the wooden handle. He shouldn't have done what he did. Made you a laughingstock. Alan didn't mean anything, Reg, Hackwell said, swinging. Rob Hackwell just came to life and got away from him. Alan Keyes had picked the wrong name for his playground demon. Like everybody, he hadn't remembered properly. Hackwell would never have chosen Alan if it hadn't been for Reg. Yet again, he'd let Hackwell take the consequences. The pick point sank into Reg's breastbone and came out between his back ribs. The independent emptied his lungs in a reverse gulp and blood burst from his mouth. 
Hackwell pulled the implement free and Reg tottered. He growled, Get the point? Reg extended his arms as black blood spurted from his mouth and the hole in his chest. Every time he'd ever been in trouble, Reg had been there, guilty and chuckling and safe. Hackwell reached out a claw hand and took a patch out of the independent's face. He crumpled it in his fist like a slimy leaf, then dropped it. What's the matter? he snarled, wiping his hand on Reg's anorak. Why the fallen face? It wasn't fair, but he had to accept it. He was Rob Hackwell, the monster. Reg stood at the lip of one of the excavations. With a prodding finger, Hackwell toppled him backwards. The grave darkness swallowed him. Hackwell looked up at the night sky and laughed, a red film on his vision turning the moon into a blood eye. As far as anyone was concerned, he was the Rob Hackwell. He stood on the brink, kicking in earth on top of the dead man. Reg's white and red face disappeared under the black clods. Looking up from the hole, a gust of wind hit his frozen face. His shut eye shocked open and he saw figures where the swings had been. A small child on the ground, another bigger one on top of him, holding his face into earth, and one standing by looking out for adults, chuckling. The wind passed and his eye closed again, shutting out the children. His face was set. He saw only the place that was his new home. A playground turned to a graveyard. Rob Hackwell squatted in the shadows between piles of earth, a night creature hiding from the dawn. That was Kim Newman's Where the Bodies Are Buried, read by, well, a few people. I'd like to give special thanks to Alex Weinley, who did the heavy lifting with this story. And just a bit about Alex. He lives in a cottage just outside of Cambridge, where he writes science fiction and narrates stories. His new fridge is bigger than the cottage itself, like a TARDIS, but containing far more calories. And thanks to all the other contributors to the story, Ron John, K.G. Cross, J.K. Shepler, Martin Rato, Drew Sebastini, Brian Rollins, Nicole Doolin, Ashley Story, Seth Williams, Paul S. Jenkins, Josie Babin, Kashik Narasimhan, Marg Essex, Jason Stubbs, Maureen McLean, Anna Simmons, Scott Silk, and Tony C. Smith. Listed the whole cast will be in the show notes, and if the reader has a link, it should be there too. Thanks for listening. It's been a fun five years, and we hope to give you many more. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show is produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.